that's powerful because all of a sudden it takes somebody who thinks I might not be able to do, do this I don't know where to start and it literally gives them a roadmap for how to do it and it makes them feel they've got that peer support hey everyone and welcome to for the love of product brought to you by the product-led alliance I'll be your host, Tiama Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product. And we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. As part of our pursuit of all things PLG, we recently launched a survey about product data and analytics, which will form the State of Product Data Report. If you're interested in seeing which tools, data sources, and metrics other product people are using, please take part in our research and help create a cross-industry report. Enjoy! Well, I am very excited to have with us today Caroline Hughes. And um, Caroline is the co-founder and CEO of LifeTies, an award-winning fintech that helps people plan how to afford major life changes, like buying a house, having children, right? Any big decision that's going to tie into you know, your finances, but also your quality of life. Um, LifeTies is a really exciting company, and I'm, I'm looking forward to Caroline telling us about her founder story with it. I know that they have recently, uh, in 2019, graduated from Accenture's FinTech Innovation Lab. And Caroline herself was named as a rising star of FinTech uh, by Innovate Finance in March of 2020. So Caroline, uh, thank you and welcome to the pod. Where are you calling in from or Zooming in from today? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am in sunny London. We have the first day of what feels like spring. Ah, and that, for people who know, is a rare thing to hear, hear sunny and London together, but it's true. And uh, right when we were jumping on to say hi, I was telling her that I've already been out for a walk this morning to go get coffee because it was so beautiful and I needed to see that sunshine. So I'm with you. It is gorgeous. It is genuinely a tonic. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So, um, Carolyn, I'm super excited for you to tell us a little bit about LifeTies because it is one of the founder stories that we've featured. And one of the reasons that we thought it was a really interesting one is where you guys are at in your journey, right? Um, so I know that you guys went through the very prestigious Accenture FinTech Innovation Lab. Um, but tell us a little bit more about, you know, the early days of your business journey. Why did you start? Who do you work with? Kind of give us the elevator pitch of what Life, uh, you know, LifeTies is. Thank you. Yeah, so we're basically filling the gap for everybody under 40 who looks around and thinks, I have no idea how to have the life that I want. I don't know how to afford anything. I can't follow the same blueprint that my parents had because they had a single or two jobs for life and house prices weren't crazy. And here I am and I've done all the things I'm supposed to do I've gone to college I've got a job and I still can't afford anything and I don't know what I'm doing and so we basically are building the blueprint for people's financial lives now that we have so much more choice and complexity around what those lives look like and so we're in a really exciting stage where we've taken on our first external investment and so we are now scaling the biz. So it's a super, super exciting bit where you go from being a scrappy team to starting to put some professionalism around it, getting in some people who are genuine experts at their jobs rather than me trying to wear all of the hats. Um, so yeah, it's great. It's a great time for us. Ah, it sounds fantastic. And you mentioned going from a scrappy team to putting some uh, parameters around it. Who are you working with? Who are you building this uh, company with? 
So it is me and my co-founder, Nick. Um, so I'm CEO, he's COO. He is, we're both great on strategy. He comes from a sales background, so he's a fantastic operator. He really makes sure that we like hit everything that we're trying to do. And then we have an incredible engineering team. Um, what has been fantastic is finally being able to work with people who are so, so talented at what they do, which means I always have a mantra that I hire better than me. I got taught it by somebody super smart that hired me when I was like quite junior. And it's something that's really stayed with me. I don't have any ego in this. I want to hire people who are really, really good at what they do so that they can elevate us and they can teach me. So we have a fantastic engineering team. And then we've been able to hire this amazing group of young marketeers who we basically throw stuff at them as challenges and they just go and they execute and they are blowing us away with what they're achieving. Ah, that sounds exciting. And yeah, actually, I we were chatting. You posted some interesting content this week about how you're leveraging the Pinterest channel. Um, and we'll dive into that later when we talk about knowing your customer and um, how you engage with your customer throughout the process. So, um, okay, let's think back to 2015, right? Um, what was the, you know, what was kind of the landscape that you were in? Obviously, you've set the tone that anyone under 40 can't use the same blueprint that their parents did. And we all, you know, I think we all understand that either from being in that persona set ourselves or having people we care about that are in that. Um, but what was kind of going on? What were the trends that were influencing that outside of, uh, you know, inflation cost and, uh, you know, basic cost of living, not keeping up with that? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? There is it's a real sense that there's a lot in the media telling, particularly millennials, you're never going to have this stuff that you want. You're never going to be able to buy a house. You're going to be poor for the rest of your lives. You're just not going to be able to do the things that you want to do. And so it was really within that context of all of the messaging that was being sent to the a new generation kind of coming up through the ranks. And we have to remember that when we talk about the under 40s, this is a generation that is now, they've got, they're going through the second of what are called once in a generation financial crises. Right. You know, they came of age in the first financial crisis that most of us can remember, which is kind of the 2007, 2008 one. And now with the pandemic, this is the second one. And so back when we were looking at this in 2015, we we were just seeing that there was a lot of messaging and a lot of, a lot of people talking about how I can't make this work. We had it amongst our friends. So this kind of came out of a very personal thing for us. We looked at our situation and realized, hang on a second, it doesn't quite add up. I'm not sure how I'm supposed to be doing things. I feel like I'm behind with my goals. Then we spoke to friends. They all said the same. And before we built anything, we spent actually about six months researching and talking to as many people as we could in different areas of the country, different, slightly different stages of their lives. And the message that came back time and time again was this one of, I don't know how to get the things that I feel I should have. And these aren't like crazy things. These are just the things which represent for people financial security and progression in life. And so we realized that it was such a widespread feeling um, that there was a real, almost like societal problem to be tackled here. 
Right. Absolutely. I want to dig into that because I think the discussion with your target market, do you have the target market that's right for you? Um, and really understanding you know, how what their values are, what they would be willing to pay for a solution is super interesting to many of our listeners who are founders or are on the founder journey. So how did you guys approach who you spoke to? Um, obviously, you were intentional about it and you took six months, but any tips for any founders who are thinking about how to stay connected with their their customer base um, and making sure that they're grounded and really understanding the pain that they're solving? Yeah, I think it's such an important step. And I think it's one that a lot of founders attempted to skip because it can be quite uncomfortable at the beginning. It feels very, very slow. <laughs> Unless you're super well-connected and you have a million friends and contacts that you can reach out to, it is it's a very manual process at the beginning, but you can't skip it. And you have to be able to frame the questions that you ask, not based on your own solution that you're hoping they want, but really to drill into what their problems are. And we really, really tried to do that. You know, we um, we looked at like the mum test and we looked at all of the other advice around how do you actually do customer research well? And we started with friends and family and then we asked for referrals and then we asked for referrals of referrals and we basically set different segments of people that we were trying to target to make sure that we weren't just talking with us in the same echo chamber. Because I think sometimes you, you know, you start with friends and family, but depending on your network, it, you can be talking to a lot of the same people. And for us, we're building like, it's a mass market platform that we're building. So we had to make sure that it reflected people's lives in different parts of the UK, people's lives who, where you're, you might be earning different salaries, where you might have different life aspirations. And so, yeah, we were very, very intentional about asking for here is the group of people that we are trying to connect with. Can you hook us up, basically? And then making sure that the questions we asked were very, very open questions. So we didn't talk about what we were thinking about building. We asked questions around where are you at in life? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about money? We really delved into the psychology that underpinned people's decisions. And then from that, we were able to kind of extract really, really interesting stuff around what is it they're trying to achieve and what is the product we can build to do that. I think you're so um, spot on that it is uncomfortable to have those discussions, right? I think a lot of us in product, for example, um, there there's always this kind of mantra, you need to be data-driven. You need to inform it with both qualitative and quantitative data. But then when push comes to shove, there's often you know barriers that are thrown up about how we can actually get to those conversations. And I think your message resonates both for our product audience, but also for our founders audience that it may be the harder point, but it's the most important thing because otherwise you're, you're really using inside out thinking and that's not validated. Yeah, completely. And do you know what? It's, um, it's something that you notice becomes harder to do the bigger you get in terms of getting the real qualitative stuff. So we have deliberately um, gone after it, particularly on our social channels and our um, and our sort of product-led marketing, where we always make sure we continue to have conversations with our customers and prospective customers, because sometimes we find that we end up just too deep in the data. So we're just looking at quant, not qual. And it for a business like ours where you are looking at customer behavior, but on a deeper level than just what they're doing on your platform. You're looking at what are they trying to achieve? How can we influence the financial actions they take in real life? The data, pure data that we get from our platform, 
wouldn't be enough unless we also had that qual data to go alongside it because we have to understand the underlying psychology and motivations for it. Absolutely. Yeah. The why behind the what, right? The why behind the action. Completely. Yeah. How do you, um, so you mentioned a, a brilliant team of marketeers. Um, how do you get that qualitative data now at the, at the size that you guys are at? Are you guys actually implementing kind of, there's a suite of tools out there that allow you to kind of capture qualitative data within the platform, or is it more of a, you know, a d- direct channel? Like how do you, how do you try to bring that qualitative data in conversationally? Yeah, we do both. We use tools, but we we love having actual conversations with people, whether that's on an individual basis. So, for example, when we onboard a new paid subscriber, we actually take the time to find out what is it that made them take that step. You know, so we're we're very, very intentional about it and we're still at the stage where we can be. Um, And as we grow, it's going to be interesting to work out exactly how can we do that as we, you know, as we're onboarding sort of 10,000, 50,000 people um, at the same time. But at the stage that we're at, we really do take the time to try to understand. And our product also lends itself to that. So our product is one where we are taking people step by step through a journey around how can they afford to do a particular life goal? What have they already tried to do? What are the blockers? And so we are pulling in a lot of this effectively qual data that is mixed with the quant data at the same time. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, I mean, the, the problem that you were describing, right. Of um, kind of life design, right. Designing your life to be more um, to produce more of the things that you think you should be able to earn. That's a big, big problem set. Um, have you been solving that from the beginning? Did you pick one angle of it? How did you, what was your kind of go to market strategy on the product you were going to build first? Yeah, so now I look at it and I think, what a, what an ambitious idea <laughs> to, <laughs> to try to model all of the different permutations of adult life. But that's really where we started from. So we, when we were looking at this, we were trying to think of how do I make life and these big life decisions make sense to people? And of course, you know, with, I'm 43, so at my age, I always thought of like Sliding Doors, that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, which yep. I think is back on Netflix right now, if anyone wants to watch it. Um, and then the more recent, all of those Choose Your Own Adventure books. I don't know if there are any geeky people out there that used to love those Choose Your Own Adventure books where you'd get to the end of a chapter and then you would choose where to go and it would direct you through the books. And we also took a lot of inspiration from The Game of Life, which was a board game in the 80s which actually I looked it up on Wikipedia and it outsold Monopoly at one point which it really really astounded me because it wasn't that fun as a game but the whole point <laughs> of it was you went I know it really like you went around a board and all of these life events got thrown at you and you had to make choices and then the, the winner was the one at the end who like had the most money left for retirement <laughs> right so it sounds like a terrible idea for a board game but actually it really reflected what we were trying to do because we knew that we had to put money back in the context of people's lives to make it as easy to understand as possible. But when we looked at it as a product to build, the easiest thing that we could think about was, okay, can we make it like a game? Can we make it like the game of life? Can we possibly make it like the Sims? You know, we're thinking, how do we update something like the game of life? And then the obvious one was like, well, you know, if people are modeling their lives, they're already doing this in Sims. 
and then we looked at the price tag of building the sims <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and uh, we were working with some AAA games uh designers and creators at the time that we were thinking about doing this and we were like oh wow that is an enormous project like it's enormous to build it just if you're doing hypothetical stuff like modeling hypothetical worlds if you try and do that as well and build in all of the financial functionality this is you know i think the sims budget is like a hundred million dollars right thinking this is easily a hundred million dollar project and we don't have hundred million dollars we don't have anywhere near a hundred million dollars like we were bootstrapped at that time so we had to break it down into modules and actually that's been a really really good thing for us because it has forced us to focus and it's forced us to get like really super tight on what is it for each module we are trying to do for our users? So, yeah, so we have taken this enormous, ambitious, slightly overwhelming idea of modeling for your whole life and started with just two life events. And now, having solved those, we're getting into the okay, now we're doing everything. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. And I think that, you know, is something that so many people, whether again, it's our listeners who are built a business because they're so passionate about solving a problem or whether it's our product leaders who are, you know, paid every day to create a product that delivers a vision um, is something that happens, right? You, you really have to be intentional about what piece to go after first. So I'm curious, you know, what were the two products that you decided to go after first and why? Yeah. So we, um, we've always tried to be very, very strategic about what we do. And there's something about particularly being a bootstrap founder and being always like resource constrained that makes you have to be both creative and also very, very focused. And also when it's, you know, when every single pound that I was making as a consultant, I have to think about how am I gonna allocate this into the business? You do you have to make some very, very tough decisions. And so we worked with an organization in the UK called Money Advice Service. And they have millions of people coming onto their websites every month looking for advice around life and financial issues. And so they very kindly shared their data with us around what our age group were searching for on their site. And that was what informed our first products. And overwhelmingly, the two life goals were buying a home and starting a family. So that's where we started. Fantastic. So if I was in either of those um, kind of life stages right now, thinking about either buying a house or having a family, give me a quick uh, overview of how would, how would Life Ties help me? Yeah, so we help you, basically we help you work out what you can afford. So we take you through an interactive journey where you tell us, how much you earn, for example, where you're looking to live, and we perform all of the calculations around affordability. So how much mortgage are you likely to get? Um, how long is it going to take you to save? And then we have this amazing interactive color-coded map that lights up in real time to show you the most affordable areas for your budget. So that's the real dopamine hit. And the thing about our product was we knew that we knew a couple of things from all the research we'd done. We knew that we had to make it so simple for people because we couldn't assume any financial knowledge. We couldn't assume that you were really happy with a spreadsheet or that you were super clued up about mortgages and things like that. 
we started from a, we're going to assume you know nothing about anything to do with money, anything to do with buying a house. So we make everything step by step. We want to remove as much of the cognitive load from you as possible. And then going back to kind of the games um, analogy, we've borrowed very, very heavily from the games industry and what they do so well, which is to keep you engaged as you're going through something. So we always give real-time feedback. We never make you fill out a form. Every single input that you give us, you get an immediate feedback on our platform. And what that does is it a couple of things. So we know that a lot of people are anxious about money or apprehensive. And we know that we can never make you feel unsure of pressing the next button. So a lot of the work that we've done in our product design is how can we make you feel um, autonomy and mastery as you're using our product so that you are building confidence, you're building this financial knowledge as you go. And at the end of it, you get this amazing plan where we show you exactly what you can afford, how you're gonna get there, all of the calculations. And now we've built in the individual steps, the actions that you have to take to make it a reality. So we got feedback from our users that they had this great plan that showed them how they could afford it. And then they were like, but what do I do? <laughs> like, how do I, I can see what I'm supposed to get to, but I don't know how to put it into action. And that's the bit that we've built out more recently. I think that's so fascinating. I mean, Caroline, you and I spoke a little bit about this in our prep session, but this is an area, financial literacy and confidence that I, I'm super passionate about because I think there's so many great tools out there, but you won't use those tools unless you feel confident, right? And unfortunately, I think a lot of the confidence comes from education that only wealthy people seem to get. It seems like there's a huge percentage of the population that don't ever get educated on, you know, the the basics that help them build wealth. So I love the idea that LifeTies is helping someone essentially understand what they're capable of doing and making that, you know, possibility of, you know, real, right? Um, I guess for, for lack of a better way to say it. Yes. And it's our North Star. So when we look at our North Star metric, it is not how much time people spend in for us. Our North Star metric is, are our users taking the real world financial actions that get them to their goal? That's the North Star. And I think that's so different from a lot of other finance apps, which are, you know, they want to see that people are moving money between different parts. So they want to see that people are doing roundups and that's great. But ours is so much broader than that. And we've built a platform where we are able to track what people are actually doing in real life. And we can kind of keep them on track to achieve the things that are so important to them. Fascinating. So I'm curious about, um, you know, the stage where you guys uh, started to decide to go out and look for money. What was the investor, you know, reaction and, and when did the Accenture, um, you know, accelerator come into play? Uh, talk to us about the, the market reaction from investors who see different fintech apps all the time and um, why and how does Lifetize, you know, stand out from, from your experiences? Yeah, so the Accenture... Um accelerator for us was us exploring what the b2b side of our market looked like and what the reaction was going to be from the financial industry um so we always built out first as a consumer proposition because that is where the market opportunity is if we can get 
more consumers of this age engaged with financial services, we can grow the overall market. But we needed to test what would the reaction be of banks, insurers, so the product providers at the end of our customer journeys. And we always started on the consumer side because we know that the supply side of the market is always going to be there. You know, there's always going to be banks, there's always going to be people with a balance sheet who have financial products to sell to customers. But the real issue was, would we have enough consumers to buy those products? So, for example, if you if people of our age can't afford to buy homes, then the mortgage market dries up. Right. If people can't afford or they don't know about investing in the stock market, then set managers are going to have a really hard time down the line when their pipeline dries up. So we went into the Accenture program to test what the reaction was from industry. And it was quite frankly overwhelming for us. We had not expected. We weren't sure if they would see us as friend or foe. And they welcomed us with open arms. And Part of that, I think, is because we solve a piece that some of them have lost touch with over time. So particularly with our audience of kind of millennials and, and Gen Z, there is an element of mistrust for banks that comes from the fact that they grew up in the financial crisis. Right. So that is kind of the messaging that they got was that finance wasn't to be trusted. Um, and so what we're doing really from that position as an intermediary is we're helping to rebuild trust. We're helping this generation of consumers to understand the benefits of certain financial products and to find the right product provider. So that reaction was amazing and really encouraging. And we're actually sort of building out the B2B side of our business now because we have such incredible insights from our platform on what our consumer group wants that is really, really valuable to banks, insurers, and even other fintechs. And then from that program was really when we were in a position to take on investment. And actually, a number of our angel investors were mentors on the Accenture program. And what's brilliant about that is that they have incredibly deep domain expertise. So they come from the financial services industry. They are fantastically well connected. They're brilliant at helping me as an outsider navigate how to work with these big financial institutions. So that's really kind of where the starting point came for us on readiness to take on that external investment. That's fantastic. And it sounds like similar to your hiring approach where you were trying to hire people who complimented you and helped you learn. You've done the same with your board selections as well. Oh, yeah, 100%. So I've gone, again, always people smarter than me. I am an incredibly curious person, but I'm also pretty self-aware and I know where my gaps are and I want to find people who either have that like I say domain expertise and we also have investors who are operators so people who have built and scaled and exited their own technology companies whether in fintech or edtech where we've obviously got some overlap and then b2b SaaS because each of those people helps me avoid the pitfalls, right? It's like me when I mentor earlier stage founders. I try to do my best to say, look, here are all the ways in which it didn't work for me. Here are the things that I learned. Here's how I can kind of fast track you past <laughs> where those ditches are. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd love to know a little bit about um, your award uh, from Innovate Finance of being a top woman in, in fintech. Tell me about that. And, and how's your experience been in fintech as a woman? Yeah. So back in 2015, when we were sort of looking at this at concept stage, I started going to lots of fintech events and kind of immersing myself in the community. And back then, you know, this was before. So I think for anybody who is kind of a fintech nerd, you have to remember that this was really back in the days when Monzo, Starling, Revolut either didn't exist or in the very, very early stages of being set up. And which seems really strange now because fintech is quite a mature industry, but even sort of five, six years ago, it wasn't like that. And there were very, very few women at that time. You know, you'd go to events and you would see the same five or six women at each event. And what I'm really pleased about is over the last sort of five or so years, how much that has grown. And I think the Innovate Finance Powerlist has been a really good marker for that because it what it shows for me is that we've got women in different areas of fintech, whether that's on the VC investor side, through founders, through women who are working in innovation in corporates. And you start to see just how much we've grown over time. And you know the fact that they're able to find 100 brilliant women each year, often highlighting new women coming into the industry is absolutely fantastic. And yeah, so last year, so I knew that I got on the list, but I didn't know that I was one of the, what they call the standout 35. So it's a list of 100 women, and then they pick the 35 that they feel have really excelled in that year. And so I didn't even know that I was in this special category until the day that they sent through the little tile for me to share on social media. (laughs) And I got the tile through and it said, you're one of the standout 35. And I thought that they'd sent me the tile in error. Because I thought, oh. well, I, would, I figured, well, I'm sure they would tell me in advance if I was in this category. And so I didn't share it immediately on socials because I was like, I don't want to be embarrassed if, if they've got it wrong. And they <laughs> <take> it <back." laughs> I was looking on email just to be sure. And they were like, no, you have got it. And I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> That's amazing. And when you when you spoke with Innovate Finance, um, what what was the reasoning that you made it as a standout? What were they what were they kind of crediting you with? Again, we have very few female CEOs of fintechs. If you look at the landscape, there are still only really a handful of us. And so I think it was the fact that, you know, I'm I'm CEO and co-founder. I'm really driving this forward. There's the element that I'm building feminist fintech, which hasn't been built before in this country. And so when we design our products, we design with female financial lives in mind just as much as men's. And that has never been done before over here. You know, we have, um, obviously there's Elvest in the US, which is looking at it from a robo perspective. But in the UK, no one's really mapped out women's financial lives. So the fact that our second product was how do you afford childcare is pretty radical in the market because nobody has connected those dots before for women's financial lives. And so I think that was a big piece of of why they gave me that award. That's fantastic. I love the concept of feminist fintech. Do you use that in kind of your external persona or is that too radical for for some of your channels? 
So it really works well. So I would say sort of on the Instagram and Pinterest channels, particularly. So we always, and you and I have talked about this before, looking at product channel fit as much as you look at product market fit. And we definitely have different personas for the different channels that we're in. So our Instagram and our Pinterest channels skew much more towards women. And then we have other channels which skew more towards men. And then the balance of that gives us what we've been working towards, which is this roughly 50-50 split of users on our platform between male and female. And for an early stage fintech company, that's quite exceptional because they, in terms of early adopters, it always tends to be much more heavily skewed towards men on a lot of the other consumer fintech platforms. And so from, a, from the perspective of our business, we're generating data that doesn't actually really exist anywhere else because we're mapping out women's financial lives at the same rate as we're mapping out men's for this generation. Yeah, that's so fantastic. I mean, I remember um, when I was doing some research on, on the wealth building space, I read about a company called Clever Girl Finance. Um, and what was really interesting, I, I read why one of their investors read in them. And one of the things that was called out is that they were super intentional about their channel fit, right? So when they were looking at how they were going to drive, you know, the lowest customer acquisition costs, right? Um, they they looked at all the different channels and found that, you know, there was a very specific channel that was going to make them stand out most. Uh, and I loved, that's why I think it, your, your post recently on Pinterest really resonated to me because it's a great example of, as you say, being intentional about your channel, your channel fit, right? Just as much as your product market fit. Yes, and we, so um, our, our biggest delta in our business is our customer acquisition cost and also our consumer engagement. So uh, if, if you ask me, like, what is it that your business does? And it's that we acquire this generation of customers at an incredibly low customer acquisition cost. So we're talking 10 to 50 times lower than the standard customer acquisition cost for these people by financial services firms. Right. right. So we, we, we've 10 to 50x lowered those costs because we understand what they want. We understand where they hang out. We understand the hooks to acquire them. And then we have on the other side, we know how to engage them and how to nurture them and how to turn them into financial um, consumers over their lifetime. So, so it's basically low cost for acquisition costs, high LTV. That's our business model. Um, and the only way you can do that is by really, really understanding the different customer segments. And on the B2B side of our business, that's essentially what we do. We help banks, insurers and other fintechs understand how do you acquire and nurture these customers and look after them for the longer term. Absolutely. I think any investors, and we have a lot of investors in our community, <laughs> are hearing that uh, business model of low CAC and high LTV and thinking, drooling, probably thinking, yes, yes, please. <laughs> We'd like more of those companies for sure. <laughs> but I think one of the things that you're hitting on that's super important is, um, and I think this is one of the things that Lifetice has done really well, is yes, of course, it starts with a really strong customer segmentation work, right? Um, but that customer segmentation isn't based on, you know, sometimes customer segmentations can be done based on things like, you know, business size or market or income bracket more for you guys. But what you've really done is you've done the work to understand the pain and then segment people based on what they're willing to pay to solve that pain. And that's really more of a value-based segmentation 
Um, so I think that's one of the things that I first hear you guys having done really well. But then secondly, you've linked it to your entire, you know, product-led uh, business strategy, right? So you've got everybody thinking about it in terms of that entire ecosystem of how do you bring them on at the lowest CAC? How do you nurture them? How do you engage them? And how do you retain them by keeping your North Star oriented ultimately on them extracting value, right? Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's real life value. And it's, and the thing that helps us with our customer acquisition is we are solving the things that are so important to them. So they are so motivated to do these things, right? It's, I want to, I want to own my own home because that represents financial security. I want to have a family, you know, it's real quality of life stuff. So we tap into that and we show them how to achieve that. And then that creates this amazing viral effect because by showing one individual how they can achieve that and visualizing it for them, then everybody else in that sphere who's kind of in a similar position is like, oh, wow, this is possible for me too. And so it creates this ripple and halo effect of by us just demonstrating for certain people, like here's, here's how to do it, means that everybody else recognizes themselves in that and then they're like, great. And real, the real tipping point for us is we have a generation of people who've been told that it's never going to happen for them. So the power of showing them what they can do and what's possible is enormous. I I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is I got an alert and um, I always put alerts for the companies and people that I'm speaking to in advance just to keep up to date with the news that's happening. And I got an alert that you guys had been featured in an MSN money um, uh, article uh, recently. And it was about a woman named Anna who used life ties to take control of her finances. Um, and it was a really... It was a real feel-good story. Um, I, I loved reading that and, and hearing about the journey that she went on using your guys' technology to recognize that she was never going to reach her home buying dreams um, if she didn't make changes and then using your product to make those changes. Yeah. It's, you know, we talk about from, the, from our user's perspective, what are we doing? We're helping them build their life stories. And those life stories are really, really powerful marketing tools. And they are both you know, narrative, and they're both data driven. And that combination is really, really potent. Because just showing somebody, oh, I've, I've managed to buy my house, I've done this doesn't resonate with people because they can't see themselves in it. But we break it down. And we give them the calculations, we say, Anna is this age, and she works doing this job, and she earns this amount of money, and she lives in this part of the country. And she's been able to save X amount per month, and here's how she's done it. That's powerful because all of a sudden it takes somebody who thinks I might not be able to do, do this. I don't know where to start. And it literally gives them a roadmap for how to do it. And it makes them feel they've got that peer support. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're helping build their confidence. So Caroline, it's been so amazing to hear about the journey thus far. I'm curious, what do you think Lifetime is? Where do you think you guys will be in five years? I mean, I know that's a difficult uh, you know, question in general, but as business owners and founders, we have more of a responsibility to have a, a viewpoint on that. So where, where do you see you guys being in the next five years? So as I kind of mentioned before, so we've gone from doing snapshots of how do I afford a home? How do I afford to have a family? And we're in the process of building out the platform where you can model pretty much every life event 
uh, in your adult life. So from leaving school all the way through to retirement, which is an enormous undertaking, but we've got a handle on it. And I can kind of describe it as like as if maybe like Mint and Notion had a kid. That's yep. really what our platform's going to be. And so that's really exciting because what that does for us over the next five years is it opens up so many product verticals. So we are helping consumers map all of this stuff for their whole lives. We're taking them on that journey. We get to be with them over five, seven years as they're going through most of these major life events. And at the same time, from an industry perspective, we are building the most unique data set in the industry based on what is it that this generation is trying to do with their lives and what financial and other products are they going to need to help them achieve that? And so we have both this consumer side and this amazing data side. And so the next five years is really going to be working and building out both of those because we essentially want to be the new distribution platform in financial services for our generation. That's ambitious, but uh, I have confidence that you guys can do it um, because I really do think that your 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 strategy is so sound and it's based in such value creation and such attention and care to staying connected to your customers and what they're willing to pay and the value that they get out of it. Um, it's it's the embodiment of product led growth um, as as a driving kind of mission for a business and it's inspiring. Thank you. Well, okay, Caroline, we're wrapping up and I always ask everybody this question. Um, so I'm going to ask you too. If there was a museum uh, when we could go to museums, right? So say uh, right next to you know the V&A, um, there was a museum dedicated to the world's best products. What would you say are a few products that should be on display there and why? Okay, so I, I haven't heard enough of your episodes to know what people come up with, but so I don't know how left field mine are going to be in comparison, <laughs> but mine would be a dialysis machine. So my sister was born with um, congenital kidney issues and she had a she had a pioneering transplant when she was age two, um, the, you know, one of the first ones that they did for children. And that last that transplant lasted for many, many years. But since then, she had the transplant failed. And so she had to go back on dialysis. And now they've created dialysis machines that you can have at home. And it has improved her quality of life so, so much. And it's an extraordinary machine. And I have so much um, respect for the creators of it, but also patients who use them. It's, it's an amazing thing. So a dialysis machine would definitely go in there. And then I think I would put money. Do we count money as a product? I think money, depending on your definition for it, could absolutely yeah. be it. So tell me why. I guess whether it's fiat currency or Bitcoin or whatever, I guess it is. I think because it took us away from the barter system. So, you know, I floated this one out and my co-founder, Nick, um, who's a real history buff, um, he was like, yeah, it's got to be money because A, it underpins our business, but also it opened up the world in terms of trading beyond what you yourself were able to produce. So Absolutely. money goes in there. And then my final one is um, female contraception. Yep. Because overwhelmingly that has allowed women to participate in the workforce and to have choices that otherwise we wouldn't have. 
I couldn't agree more with that. And that third one is definitely one that um, we've had other female guests call out before. I, I inspire, or excuse me, I encourage everyone if they haven't read uh, Melinda Gates' uh, Moment of Lift, there's never been a better uh, argument made for that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense uh, just as you explain it, but what you know, Moment of Lift does, and I think Melinda does an excellent job of, is talking about the basically the domino effect of what happens when you put a woman in control of making choices about when she has children, right? Um, and how that drives huge economic empowerment to a society. So I'm with you on that. And I think all three of those are great. I love the idea that we've got your personal experience with a dialysis machine. I love that Nick got to have his say with uh, replacing the bar- barter system. And then the female contraception, it always deserves another shout, even if we've had it once before. Right. Thank you so much. Yes, it's been wonderful. We wish you all the best. We'll be following along with your journey. And if people want to check out LifeTies, what's the best way to do that? So LifeTies.com. And then we are at LifeTies across all social channels. Fantastic. Okay, Caroline, have a wonderful day. Enjoy that sunshine in London that's so rare. And um, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of chronic-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.